0: Good evening, everyone, to Mosaic at WW, and happy Easter, guys. Yeah. Tonight, we celebrate the risen Savior, Jesus, that the tomb is empty. The slain lamb has arisen. So we remember the beauty of this reality together, and we have called it at some point in time, Easter. So what I want to do first, though, was to ask Why? Why is, this, why is the event of the supposed resurrection of an individual almost 2,000 years ago still relevant today and relevant enough that we would have a holiday to celebrate him? In fact, I was even thinking in this week, what is the purpose of holidays in the beginning? Like, why do we have holidays? What's the importance of holidays, especially holidays that are to do with God and how we relate rightly to him? And the more I thought about it, the more I realized this. That holiday serve is a rhythmic reminder to forgetful people. Forgetful people like me, who regularly forget how good and faithful God is to his people. That regularly forget that he is present with us in the midst of adversity, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of strife. I was thinking about Christmas. Christmas where Christmas is obviously it's more than just a holiday to get all the cool stuff that we want, even though that's always kind of fun, um, but that it is supposed to be this moment where we are remembering in the past that this, that this supposed Christ child was born in Bethlehem. And why is that even relevant today? Well, it's relevant because in this baby, the Godhead was present, that in Jesus, God's presence became among for all humans. And essentially what it means for us today is that we do not have a God who does not understand where we are at. So it matters. So then for Easter, why do we celebrate the the reality that Jesus was dead? Meaning that his heart stopped beating, that blood stopped circulating, that the neurons and synapses in his brain stopped firing off. Dead, buried, checked, and left just for him to have an empty tomb. And there were claims circulating around the Roman world that this this teacher who claimed to be God himself, that he was gone. And now he was claiming that they were claiming that he was undead, that that was somehow supposed to matter back then and including to us. So what difference does that make, even if it's true? Well, you see, I was thinking about this week how there are certain things that dead guys just don't do. And that is where we are at tonight as we are entering in the book of Colossians. But before we get there, I was thinking about what are things that dead guys can't do? Well, one thing that dead guys can't do is they can't save you. They're not very good at saving you after death, right? That typically has never happened before. And that's important because it answers into an objective truth that all of us called to realize, which is that we need a Savior. Now, that's relevant because in my own heart, in our culture, in the world we live in, we, we don't live with a mindset where We need heroes for us. We live in an ideal where I can be my own hero. I can save myself. I don't want someone else to come to my rescue. I'm gonna do it and figure it out on my own. That's the way my natural bend is. And I'm gonna go ahead and assume if you are human like me, then to some degree, that is probably you as well. But you see this mindset helped shape the way that we view ourselves in this situation that we find ourselves in. So the question is, what is the situation that we need saving from in the first place? If I am saying things like we need a savior, why, what are we being saved from? Well, you probably already know where I'm going to go with this, but the scriptures talk about something that is called the cancer of sin. And sin is the infection that has plagued humanity throughout the centuries. Uh, Now, sin is a loaded word, and especially for those of us who may not come from a church background or maybe even a de-church background, that can be very off-putting to talk about. But when I'm talking about sin, what I mean is anything short of God's intent for human flourishing, God's divine ideal that we would live in. I found this to be quite interesting. I found a survey from 2017 that was done that found that most Americans actually view themselves as sinners, Most Americans, in fact, 67% of Americans, not just people who call themselves Christians, Americans as a whole, considered themselves to be sinners. I found it also interesting in the survey that 15% of people refused to answer that question one way or the other. I was like, it's an anonymous survey. That's kind of strange. Um, They're like, yeah, yeah, I know where you're going with this now. But... What's interesting about that 67% is the largest group in that chunk, 34%, believe that although they would consider themselves to be sinners, they believe it is their job to fix the problem on their own. And I compare that with a study that was done just last March at the beginning of the pandemic in America, which concluded that 46% of those of us who would consider ourselves to be Christians in America— agreed with this statement. Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. Now, here's why I say that. With a number this large, either here in person or watching online as well, I'm gonna go ahead and assume that as I read that statement, you might go, some of us probably went, yeah, I'd agree with that. That makes sense to me. And what this brings us to is the importance of are we diagnosing the problem rightly? It matters because... Here's why it matters. A few weeks ago, um, I was uh, doing a woodworking project in our back patio with Allie. And as we're doing this woodworking project, I get a splinter in my hand and it wasn't like an easy one. It was like a bad one. Does anybody actually love getting splinters? Any- no. No, nobody's excited for splinters. Okay, so I'm gonna assume that we've all gotten a splinter at some point and we all realize they're not fun, right? Like you get a splinter and you go, yippee, my day is made. Um, Splinters aren't fun, but you wanna know what's worse than splinters? A lot of things, a lot of things are much worse than splinters. Um, Cancer, blood disorders, not making light of anything, celiac disease, not to make light of any of those things, but those things are all worse than a splinter in our hand, right? And we know that because I would imagine that your first reaction when you get a splinter is not, well, let me get in the car and head over to the ER. That's probably not the typical thing you do when you get a splinter in your hand. Why? Because you know you can probably figure the problem out for yourself. You can get, um, you get the tweezers and some rubbing alcohol and you're able to actually remove the splinter. Or maybe it's in like a really difficult, weird space like it was on mine and Allie had to kind of pull that splinter out, not fun. Um, or you got, kind of get a little squeamish so you kind of get a, a roommate or somebody to come and coax them to, get, to help you out with that splinter, right? But you're not showing up at the ER. Now, if that splinter you discovered was sitting right on top of something that you would, you think, man, this could be a tumor you're probably not trying to figure out the problem by yourself anymore, right? You're probably making an appointment to go to see a specialist so that not just the splinter, but that the tumor was actually removed. Does that kind of make sense? So it's important that we have a proper diagnosis. And tonight, as we continue in our book of, into our journey into the book of Colossians, that's exactly where we're going to go. To get a proper diagnosis, but to see what the ultimate cure is. Now, if you've been with us journeying so far, um, awesome! We are in Colossians chapter two. If you have not been journeying with us so far, that's totally okay. Um, I'm going to catch you up to speed in two in two sentences. Uh, the most important things for you to know about this book, the book of Colossians. This was written by a guy named Paul, who was an early leader in the church um, almost two thousand years ago, and he wrote this letter to a church in Colossae, which is a city state uh, in, in the in the Roman Empire. And he was writing this letter for a multitude of reasons, but it could be. Summed up in two simple phrases, which is that he wants to encourage this church with two truths, that Jesus is supreme, that he is above all things, that he is powerful, that he is majestic, that he is sovereign above all things. Jesus is supreme and Jesus is enough. That Jesus is enough so you don't need to add anything, any other philosophies, any other thoughts, any other saviors other to Jesus because Jesus really is enough. So that's where we've been journeying so far in our book, uh, in our journey in the book of Colossians. So we're going to be in Colossians 2, starting in verse 13 tonight. And for any of you who are following along maybe on a smart device, awesome. Uh, We are in the English standard version, if that just makes it a little bit easier to read along with me. All right, so let's go ahead and dig in. And you... Who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. The problem, the problem according to Paul for humanity is that we are born in death and we are born separated from God's family. Now, this is a much different diagnosis than we typically want to think about, and according to that poll, even 46 percent of people who would consider themselves Christians would, would say that we are born in death, that our sin has resulted in death. This is much different than what, different than we typically think of. The fact that our natural bend as human beings is to rebel against God and his desires. Uh, The best way I've ever heard it defined is simply this, that our desire is to define good and bad on our own terms. That's what I want to do. Now, Paul wrote another letter to a church in Rome, and he wrote it this way. He said, for the wages of sin is death. So think about wages for a second. Um, What are wages? Wages are what you earn based on work, right? You do work, um, maybe it's a salary, maybe it's hourly, maybe it's based on a contract, but whatever it is, you you, you do work and you get paid for that work. That is the definition of a wage. But the natural bend of humanity, if that is the case, the wages of sin is death, is that it's like we clock in in the morning. Every morning we wake up, And our natural bend is to define good and bad on our own terms. That our desire is our way to pursue pursue after things, those things that are beneficial and unhelpful and do it in our ways on our own terms. And the wages of that is ultimately death, meaning separation from God and his good desires for us. We separate ourselves willingly from him. And that is a very different diagnosis so far. Then he says another kind of odd part though, right? And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Now, that could sound kind of odd, especially in light of what does this have to do with any of this? Why are we talking about circumcision here? Now, if you weren't here last week, we chatted a little bit about what Paul was getting at when he's using language revolving around circumcision. Paul was referencing that in, the ear- that in the earliest parts of the scriptures, God dis- desired that his people, the nation of Israel would demonstrate them is set apart from the rest of the world and all the other countries and all the other tribes that they were set apart for him by getting the physical marker of circumcision on the males. So that was supposed to be a physical marker to display a heart transformation and an ultimate identity that was set apart from the world and was set firm in God. So when Paul is talking here about circumcision, what he is not just talking about is a physical marker. What he is talking about is that whether they were ethnic Jews um, who were most likely circumcised or ethnic non-Jews, otherwise known as Gentiles, who were most likely uncircumcised, what they had in common is that their natural state was not belonging to God's family because of their rebellion against him. So according to Paul then, the proper diagnosis for the brokenness of our world and within us humans is death and separation from God. And if that's where I was to end tonight, this would be like the saddest sermon you've ever heard, right? I love candy. I love Sour Patch Kids specifically. Yeah, yeah. Good name, man. Uh, and like some Sour Patch Kids. I haven't had any yet today. It's not my 7-Eleven on the way home. All right. Uh, Sour Patch Kids are so good, right? because why they start out sour and then they end up sweet like that's the beauty of sour patch kids now if there was no sweetness to the sour patch kids it's just a block of salt and it's not very delicious at all it's just salt and so far we've talked about the sour the broken state the problem but now for our rest of our time we get to look at the solution Because you see, that's not even the rest of this sentence. And you who were dead in in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, what? God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Mm. Guys, this is good news. But guess what? Dead guys are really bad at this kind of stuff. See, Jesus is alive. And that news that Jesus has risen from the grave affects every aspect of our lives, our world, and our hearts. So let's keep reading from verse 13. So God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Not bad for a dead guy. See, Jesus is supreme. Jesus is enough. And because Jesus is the resurrected one, because the stone was rolled away and he walked out of the tomb, he has the ability to make us alive together with him. In other words, we have been attached to his life. Where we were dead in our trespasses, we have now been made alive together with him. There's a tether between us and Jesus for those of us who follow after him. That means that his life is now our life. His victory is our victory. His family is our family. That's the truest thing About us, because you see where sin divided us from God in Jesus, we are now unified again with Him. Even better, in the scriptures, it says that while we were separated from Him, God made us alive together with Him so that we could be adopted into the full rights of sonship, that our identity is sealed with Him, that our best is no longer relevant to the equation. It's in him and in him alone that we are now adopted into his forever family and he and and the good news about the father is he, he offers love and care and understanding that is so far superior than anything we can experience apart from him so the news that Jesus is alive affects every aspect of our lives in our world. so verse 14. I'm sorry, verse 13. Let's read that last part. Having forgiven us all our trespasses. See, not only do we receive unity with God again, but remember that whole pesky business of sin and brokenness? Well, if you're like me, when you are confronted with your own sin and your own brokenness, you might tend to do one of three things. Deny it, rationalize it, or run away from it. But what did Jesus do? What does he do with our sin? That's what I do with my sin. What does Jesus do with with our sin? Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So what does Jesus do with our sin? He forgives it, he cancels it, and he nails it to the cross. And that is incredible news. Because you see, when Jesus was hung on the cross, he dealt not just with the symptoms of sin. Like he didn't just come to make us a little bit nicer, to make us gossip less or lust less or love a little bit more. No, that's not Jesus. He didn't come for a makeover. He came for a renovation from the ground up. And he came to deal with the root of our brokenness, the root of the problem. See, God's requirement was perfection and our inability to deliver on that reality led to the chasm of a problem that we cannot fix by ourselves. But on the cross, Jesus took our sin on himself, which only he could do because only he was a sinless, the only sinless ideal human in the history of humanity, which is only because he was fully God that he could accomplish any of it. Now, When we typically think of our sin, we typically think of it in comparison to other people, right? Um, For example, at least I am better than him or her or the them, whoever, the other side of the political spectrum or whatever, right? We're like, at least I am better than that person or that group. But what that is, is that is finding our rightness in ourselves, our righteousness in ourselves. There's a word for that. It's called self-righteousness. I don't want to be that, but it's there. The other end when we comp- on the, the comparison game is when we compare ourselves to others that we view to be better than us. Man, I could never be as good as her or him or them. They're just so awesome and I'm just so frail and I'm so broken and I'm so messed up if I were only like them, but I'm not. But you know what that is? That is finding my own rightness in myself, except it's just my own wrongness. So I'm focusing again on whether or not I am right based on myself, which is again, self-righteousness. Self-righteousness, both sides of the same coin. And both sides are a losing proposition. But you see, while our thoughts were on us and on our comparisons, what Jesus' thoughts of our sin were on is that he was going to redeem us and to restore us. And what this means is that if you are rifled right now with guilt and shame, unforgiveness towards yourself or to others, know this. Whatever, however broken you think you are, however scarred you think you are, however unworthy you think you are, those things are no longer the truest thing about you. That's not how God sees you. If you are stuck in the movements of comparing yourself to those who are worse than you and you are filled with pride and arrogance and self-righteousness in that way, those are not the truest things about you. The truest things about you, if you identify yourself with Jesus, is what he has done. And Jesus died on the cross to, so that we could be called forgiven. Forgiven. So he forgave it. Then he also canceled it by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Canceled it. In the Roman world, tax collectors would be represented all throughout the Roman Empire in each village or in each city. And the and the tax collector's job was to carry around a record of debt a record of debt for each family or individual so that they could keep into account all that you owed to the Roman government. So this is the kind of language that Paul's using here. But you see, our debt is so unimaginable that it wouldn't fit inside one little, one little book. It would fill up a library. Our record of debt though, well, it would be vast on our own account. In Christ, everything has changed because what does it say he did? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. See, our debt was more vast than we know, but the grace of Jesus is more vast than we could possibly imagine. There are legal demands. Now, here's why legal demands matter. Because what Jesus did on the cross was not, God was a little ticked at us, so then Jesus had to come and make God happy with us. That's not what this is about. There were actual legal demands against us. But in Christ, everything changed because that record of debt, while the Roman accusers hung him up on a cross, they thought they were nailing him on a cross. But look what Jesus did, resurrected. He nailed our record of debt to the cross. Isn't that an incredible visual? What a powerful visual. Jesus, the crucified Savior, the... The, ris- the slain lamb, he has risen. And because he has risen, the real one that has been nailed to the co- cross is not him, but sin and death. That the record that was supposed to accuse us, it no longer stands. Now, so far, we have been fairly individualistic about, about this, talking about our personal salvation, what that means, which is all true. But the beauty of the story of what Jesus has accomplished by his death and his resurrection otherwise known as the gospel, it's multifaceted like a diamond. And with each turn, it just, it just accentuates its beauty. See, not only did Jesus come to save me and rescue you, he came to usher in a new kingdom. That's why Jesus said things like his way to distill the gospel is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. This is why, when he was teaching his disciples how to pray, he said, Pray something like this Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, Jesus came to usher in and to bring in a new kingdom with himself as the true king. In a kingdom of darkness, in a world of darkness, a kingdom of light was emerging, filled with life, light, and freedom, where things like injustice, skepticism, and broken promises are done away with, where love for one another is the defining characteristic. And that leads us into Paul's final thought in this passage that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. In him, you see the broken forces of our spiritual enemy who defined the, the kingdom of this world he's been humiliated in the gospel. anybody grow up watching Phineas and Ferb there we go I it's, it was a show on Disney Channel for, for any of you that didn't grow up with Phineas and Ferb or the Disney Channel. Um, so Phineas and Ferb is, uh, is a great show. I still love it. And in fact, I'm, I've been trying to get Asher to watch it with me, um, but he's three. And I think um, it's a little, he might be a little young for such sophisticated, subtle nuance of platypus-related humor. Um, but <laughs> Either, either way, in this show, there are two main characters, Phineas and Ferb, who are these two kids who want to take advantage of every day of their summer vacation by doing something epic and awesome, right? And so every day, they do something like build roller coasters, find Frankenstein's brain, what have you, and... Um, and each day at the end of each episode, the, their plan was awesome, it worked, it was great. And their, sis, their older sister, Candace stands as their accuser. She wants to catch them. She wants to bust them in the act. And so her desire is always to come up with all of this evidence to display why her brothers are guilty of the crime of whatever she's accusing them of. And without fail, at the end of every episode, Candace stands as the accuser and brings her mom over. And all the evidence is wiped away. And she is left looking pretty silly. See, this is what Jesus has done. He has disarmed the enemy. The accuser's ammunition has been taken away from him. And don't get me wrong. The accuser actually had ammunition against me and you. Like, like the, 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 the guilt, the brokenness, the bondage, all that stuff was real. But it all got washed away by the cross. His accusations have been diminished. They're humiliated. The ammunition was taken out of his weapon, and he stands there looking to accuse, and all of a sudden he is looking rather silly. And that's what it says that the accuser has been put. To open shame. That phrase, I love that phrase. It comes from Roman imagery. In the Roman world, they would have known exactly what this looks like because the image is that of a Roman general who would go and they would, after a military conquest, would take their victims, those that they hit, their foes that they have destroyed, and they would take them naked behind their chariot chained. They were put to open shame that everyone would see that they were vanquished, they were destroyed, they were nothing. And now that language is being attributed to our spiritual enemies, Satan. You see, an invisible cosmic struggle took place at the cross where the prince of this age was cast out, John 12, 31. He was thrown down to the earth, Revelation 12, verse nine. He was bound, Revelation 20, verse two, through Jesus's death for us and for the sake of the world, an eternal debt was satisfied. The wrath of God was satisfied. The accusations that the enemy had against us is null and void. The struggle with Satan and his legions has been dealt a fatal blow. Now, the reality is is that the struggle with Satan and his legions will not see its full completion until Jesus' return again. But the devil's power is broken. He doesn't have a leg to stand on against us. His only desire is to try his best to convince us that it's not true. All right, I'm gonna finish off with one last thought, one last lesson, Um, and it's gonna be a Latin lesson. So this is gonna take some audience participation. You guys ready for this? Cool, all right. So so the phrase is Christus Victor. So what I'm gonna ask you to do is to repeat that phrase after me because I want it to kind of get immersed in the subconscious of your brain. So I'm going to say the first word and then I'm going to say the second word. I'm asking ask you to repeat after each one. All right, so the first word is Christus. So say it with me now. Christus. 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 Okay, perfect. And the second word is victor. Victor. Christus victor. Christus victor. Great job, guys. Y'all know Latin now. Christus victor means Christ is the victor. See, God triumphed over the enemy of this world through Jesus on the cross and through the resurrection. See, while the enemy thought that he had it all in the bag and he's like, I'm even gonna see God dead? This is awesome. He didn't know what he was actually up to. (laughs) He was embarrassed. He was humiliated and he did not stand a chance. This is a bigger mismatch than anything you would find in the MCU or Lord of the Rings. This is not a match between two equals or between two near equals. This is creator versus weak, emaciated creation. And it proves that Jesus is supreme and Jesus is enough. Now, here's the objection that I could imagine that you would have like me. Well, if Jesus really is victorious, Cool. Then why is our world still so broken? Why do I still struggle? Well, you see, this results in what's called the already and the not yet. See, already Jesus is victorious. Our enemy has been humiliated and we have been forgiven. But then there's the business of the not yet, which the not yet is the fact that our enemy walks around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. What that means is it's not like he's roaring in strength, it's that he's roaring in in defeat, that he has been humiliated, that he is sitting broken, but a wounded lion is still pretty challenging. And his job now is to make God's kids believe that somehow what was formerly true of them is still true of them today. But the kingdom of God is advancing Because Jesus is alive, and those of us who've been adopted into his forever family have been given his spirit, whether we feel empowered or not, whether we feel strong or not, whether we feel powerful or not. We've been given the powerful spirit of God that we would go out and love people well, making disciples of the one true resurrected Savior, Jesus. That we would tell others about Christus Victor, That Jesus is victorious even when it feels like our lives are falling apart. And this is why Easter matters. Because we are a forgetful people. I am a forgetful person. I forget God's faithfulness, his love, his kindness, his grace. I forget the beauty of the gospel. I forget how desperately I need Jesus. But I don't need it just once a year or twice a year. I need to remember this every minute of every day. Now, for some of us here, some of us who are online, perhaps you've never heard the message of being saved by Jesus presented quite like this. And you would either, maybe you have questions, comments, concerns, frustrations. Just know that you're in a safe community to wrestle with all those things. That whether you call this place home or this is your first time ever visiting, this is a safe place to wrestle. You're in a safe community to ask questions and to even be a little frustrated sometimes. Now, some of you might be here tonight and you have a strong desire within you to begin to know this Jesus that I have been talking about. You wanna know him and you wanna trust him as your savior. And if that's you, on either end of that, just know we wanna be here for you. So at the end of our gathering tonight, we'll have some prayer volunteers up here. And we're gonna give you some other, um, other ways as well um, for you to uh, begin more conversations about this. Just know that we as a community desire to journey with you wherever you're at. So Jesus is the victor. and What that means is we don't have to strive. I'm a striver. What about you? We don't have, to, we don't have anything left to prove. We can stop flailing in the water and we can allow Jesus to do his work in us and through us. I'm gonna invite the band to go on, come on up. And all I can think about is imagine the way that this would display the gospel to a world where to be honest, the church doesn't always represent Jesus well, where we don't always display the voice in the face of love well imagine what it would look like if we lived as if Christ is the victor. Not me, but I am attached to him. So that means me. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for... Tonight, I thank you for the fact that we have the opportunity with Easter to come and to worship you and to celebrate you and to make you known and glorified that we could preach you, that we could proclaim you, that we could worship you. Lord, I, I pray over each and every one of us here tonight because every single one of us is in desperate need of a Savior, whether we feel it or not. I need you. I need you this week. We need you this week. We need you next year. We need you through the end of this pandemic. And we need you when this pandemic is long since over. We need you. So Father, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that he is risen, that he is alive, that he is victorious and that he is above all things. So I pray tonight, especially for any of us here in person or online who have questions about this Jesus, who may even struggle with how can a guy raise from the dead? I pray over those of us who might have questions that we'd be able to genuinely ask them, talk about it. And that I my prayer though is Lord that your spirit would be pursuing them even now. Even before they came in tonight, your spirit was pursuing them. God, we need you more than we know. You were good and you were kind. We need you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.